Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is part two of bariatric emergencies for the general and acute care surgeon. Uh, again, I'm Jason Bingham, I'm a bariatric surgeon. I'm joined by John McClellan, who is a trauma and critical care surgeon. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind the scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Now we're moving on to something that general surgeons are very well versed in is small bowel obstruction, specifically following gastric bypass. So in these patients, you'll see the incidence of these uh, obstructions after bypass or bypass shows you up to like 5%. They can be caused by a lot of different things, uh, including internal hernia, which is predominantly the largest cause or the most scary cause. So it's about almost 50% of all, all the small bowel obstructions, adhesions, intussusception, bezoar, and then intranormal blood clot, which actually is my favorite one. So Jason, tell me about internal hernia. So how do we, how do we manage these patients? Yeah. So this is why it's really important. When I was said, you know, you got to understand the basic anatomy of the different bariatric procedures. You know, I, I, I've lost track of how many times I've gotten called from a, you know, an ER somewhere with like a sleeve patient who they're concerned about internal hernia. Um, and it just tells me we need to, need to do a little bit better job of educating our colleagues uh, about some of the different complications after bariatric surgery. Obviously with a sleeve, you don't have any mesenteric defects. So that, you know, uh, they can have all the other reasons for a bowel obstruction, adhesions, a, a lot of those different things you mentioned, uh, but internal hernia is, is not one of them. And even with uh, uh, a gastric bypass, there's different ways of constructing that, right? So again, did they go retrocolic when they constructed it? Did they go anticolic. That's going to affect where your different mesenteric defects are. So, um, you know, we can, you can have your Peterson's defect, you can have your defect at your JA, or you can have your defect through your transverse musicolon when you do your, you know, a retrocolic gastrojejunostomy. All those are potential spaces to form an internal hernia. So I think we'll kind of address these kind of one by one. You mentioned a lot of different reasons why you can have internal, have the small bowel obstruction after uh, gastric bypass. Internal hernia, you know, adhesions, intussusception you know, phytobezoar, intraluminal blood clot. The key thing, the uh, overarching thing to remember here though, is, is what's different about a bypass patient versus a, any other patient that comes in with a small bowel obstruction is, is you can't always decompress them with an NG tube. So you need to look at that CT scan. You really need to look closely at that BP limb and that remnant stomach. Because the risk is if you have a uh, obstruction that's of that BP limb and their remnant stomach is big and dilated, don't just put it in it and say, don't manage these like you would a, a, a your standard small bowel obstruction uh, where they're otherwise stable. You put in an NG tube and you decompress them. You can't access that that uh, that bypass limb. So you're at risk for you know blowing out their remnant stomach, which is, is really a disaster. So that's why we have to be very... Um, uh, have a very low threshold for surgically exploring these patients, especially if they have dilation of their BP limb. So is it uh, safe to say that every single patient that comes in with, you know, dilation of the BP limb and a concern for small bowel obstruction should be explored? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Uh, there's obviously some nuance to that. Um, uh, certainly on a board scenario, absolutely. Um, you know, when you're dealing with these things a lot, you know, there's, there's you know, and you think you, it depends on what's going on, right? Like, so I had a patient a week ago that came in with some epigastric pain, had a little bit of a dilated of their gastric remnant, but it looked like they had a GG fistula. And that was the reason. So, you, you, you know, you kind of have to 
be an expert in reviewing these CT scans. Nobody knows the anatomy better than a surgeon, so don't rely upon your radiologist. The radi our radiologists are great, but they've never. You have to have been there a few times inside the abdomen to see this anatomy to really understand and be able to adequately interpret that CT scan. So, in answer to your question, have a little threshold. Err on the side of going, popping a scope in at the very least, and taking a look around. Yes. Um, uh, and, you know, leave those more kind of um, nuanced calls to somebody who deals with this a lot. But if you're out there, if there's any question, especially if they have tenderness, if they have any type of, uh, you know, uh, elevated white count, those type of things. Uh, yeah, go to the OR, take a look. Um, and it, I mean, the big risk is, you know, historically, this has been a major cause for, you know, sh uh, short gut syndrome. These patients can lose um, if they have an internal hernia that's unrecognized and is ischemic, uh, they can lose a large portion of their small intestine. That can be very difficult and very devastating. So yes, have a very short threshold for exploring these patients. Yeah, and you know, we're getting a, a little off topic. We're still talking about internal hernia. We're talking about small bowel obstruction, specifically in bariatric patients. But when you say take a look in the operating room, like, can you summarize maybe like three steps or five steps of what you're going to do in the operating room when you have a, I mean, minus taking down adhesions and defining anatomy? What are you going to do? So, yeah, so um, there's a couple, couple of different ways of approaching this. Um, you know, my typical workup for this or my approach to this is that um, um, I, I, you know, it depends on your comfort with laparoscopy, but I'm comfortable with laparoscopy, so I'll, I'll, I'll address both of these patients laparoscopically. I will put in an NG tube, but I will place it myself. This isn't a, this isn't a, a, an NG tube that you want, you know, the nurse to place because you know you don't have you're dealing with that pouch and you can't perforate that pouch if you're not careful. So you want to be a measure, and you want this is a surgeon placed NG tube. Um, and I want to go expeditiously to the operating room after I start my resuscitation. For my positioning, um, I tuck both arms because uh, whether or not you think you need to or not, you're going to be happy that you tuck both arms. Otherwise, you're going to be cursing yourself when you're trying to run the bowel down in the pelvis. I, I go with kind of, a, if, you, if you picture um, a, uh, a, a dice, like a, a rolling dice and picture the number five. Um, I'll put my port at the, um, my camera port at the umbilicus and I'll do four fives, um, three to four fives um, in that kind of dice configuration. And that allows me to get to any quadrant of the abdomen and run. So uh, if we're going down the scenario of a, an internal hernia, uh, the proximal segments are going to be dilated and friable. Okay. So uh, almost hundred percent of the time I'm going to start the, at, at distally, I'm going to start at the terminal LEM and I'm just where the, the bowel is decompressed and it's, it's, uh, easier to handle. And I'm going to start running that proximally 99.9 .9 times out of hundred, you know, doing that is going to reduce your internal hernia. Um, you know, unless it's, you know, strangulated and, and there's, you know, dead balance really stuck in there. But most of the time, just start doing that, starting the TI and running backwards is going to reduce that internal hernia. And that prevents you from kind of getting as confused as well as to, oh, is this the BP limb? Is this the common channel? Is this the rule limb when you're dealing with, you know, these big dilated loops that are in your face? So start the TI, run backwards, identify your mesenteric defects. Um, uh, again, you want to, you want to, you want to see your rule limb, you want to see your BP limb, you want to make sure everything's oriented correctly and then close your, 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 um, your mesenteric defects, wherever that might be. So uh, again, you got to know those spaces. If it's a retrocolic, there, there might be a, uh, defect with bowel going through that transverse mesencolon. There's that Peterson's defect as the rule limb comes over and that, you know, as a, as a rule limb comes up, um, and uh, either with that transverse colon or the transverse mesocolon, there's that space there. And then there's that, that JJ anastomosis, there's your mesenteric defect there. And the most common one you see is which one? 
Uh, most common is actually so uh, is actually at the JJ. Is at the JJ. Um, Peterson's defect gets all the because it's got a cool name. It's got all the you know it, it gets all the all the the um, hype, but it's uh, your most common one is at that JJ. And I, I will also you know to kind of step take a step back before we get to the OR. Don't be fooled by your CT scan. So there are a lot of things that you can see on a CT scan that are in, that are concerning for an internal hernia. The most common being that that JJ is not where it's supposed to be. So you know generally that JJ that staple line is in the left upper quadrant. If it's displaced somewhere else, uh, that's that's a sign that uh, you may be dealing with internal hernia in the absence of anything else. You know they talk about the swirl sign. There's a mushroom sign. There's a lot of different signs. But you could actually have a normal appearing CT scan um, and, uh, and, and still have an internal hernia. So um, this, this is one of those things that, yeah, you have to be an expert looking at a CT scan, but you also have to have, you know, trust your clinical acumen. Um, and if you're concerned, um, you need to have a very th low threshold for exploring these patients. And then how we fix it. Uh, so I would just, I mean, so yeah, of course you got to assess your bowel, right? So, you know, you got to, you got to assess if you need to do any type of resection, obviously you have to do that. Um, it may involve, you know, uh, uh, you know, some type of, uh, resection reconstruction of any, you know, non-viable tissue. Um, but just close, I mean, so you just close the mesentery defect, how you would anywhere, you know, anywhere else. I, I use a permanent suture. Um, uh, laparoscopically, it, you know, it's, it's your preference. I'll, I like, I like using a permanent V-lock. Um, uh, otherwise you can use silk or, or whatever you're comfortable with. And I, and of course there's no, you know, there, there's no shame in, in opening if you're not comfortable uh, handling things laparoscopically. And then, you know, we talk about, you know, there's different people who say, close these things, leave them open, all these things. I think in bariatric literature and bariatric terms, the majority of these close the defect uh, specifically. Um, but, you know, we didn't talk about specifically why we get internal hernias in these patients. Like, why do these patients experience internal hernias? Why does that defect open up and, you know, down the line? Yeah. So, um, you know, what I always tell patients is, uh, you know, the mesentery, explain to them what the mesentery is and the mesentery is made of fat, right? So, uh, a lot of times these are patients that have had massive weight loss. So, uh, yeah, I think almost everybody will close their, their mesenteric defects these days. You know, historically they didn't always close this, the mesenteric defects. There's probably still some people out there that are not, but I think almost everybody is, but as you lose weight on the outside, you lose weight on the inside. So, um, as you lose massive weight, you know, these things can open up and, you know, with the us doing more and more minimally invasive things, there's a less, you know, there's less scar tissue. Um, and so things are more mobile. Um, you know, internal hernias are very rare after an open bypass, um, uh, not unheard of, but they are significantly less common than after laparoscopic surgery. So things are mobile, people lose uh, weight, they lose weight in their mesentery. Um, and that causes some of these defects that, that, that uh, were previously closed to open up. Okay. Well, that was one reason why we have a small bowel obstruction in these post-bariatric patients. And, you know, another, uh, another issue is intussusception with obstruction. So how does this form, Jason? Yeah. So this is really, this is kind of fascinating. This is one of my favorites. Um, this is one of my, one of my, you know, if I were to have a favorite emergent, uh, post-bariatric complication, I think it would probably be intussusception. Um, yeah. Got, I think it's interesting. So, um, yeah, so it, this typically, you know, this will occur at you know, after typically after rheumatoid gastric bypass at the JJ, you know, there's, uh, this is another one of those things that people feel very strongly about how it forms the pathophysiology, you know, uh, to what effects different things, uh, like how you construct your JJ contribute to the formation of these later and how it's managed. So, um, with, you know, 
things that are, are very, you know, hot topics and controversial, um, uh, especially rare things uh, are fascinating because it means nobody really knows the answer. So um, what I would say is that uh, the way you can prevent these, uh, I think, is reasonable is by, you know, making a, a, a JJ that's as big as it needs to be and no bigger. So, you know, I wouldn't advocate, you know, taking your 60 millimeter stapler and doing a tri-staple technique um, and, and, you know, there's some data that suggests anything greater than 90 mLs total for your JJ it has a higher rate of, of intussusception. Um, it's a hard thing to study because it's such a rare event. Um, what is fascinating is that patients who develop JJs uh, or uh, intussusceptions, no matter how you deal with them, are still at a higher risk of having another interception down the road, regardless of how you manage it. So it tells me that there's there's something going on with the underlying mobility or motility of the gut that's that's resulting in this. So there's different ways you could have an you know an antegrade of the of the RU limb down the common channel, the BP limb down the common channel, the common channel up into the JJ. Almost universally, it's that latter one. It's the common channel retrograde intussuscepting up into the into the JJ. It kind of just kind of sneaks its way up there, kind of like a little worm up into the JJ and gets stuck. Um, and you can see this on the CT scan a lot of times. You know, uh, you know, I think as, as general surgeons, we we get called a lot of times by you know, radiologists saying they see a trans, you know, there's a transient intussusception of the small bowel, and and you know we're we're prone to kind of ignore those. Um, this is a little bit different, especially if you if you have an evidence of obstruction. Uh, this is something you need to do something about. So, uh, so the management for this, if there's an obstruction and an intussusception of the JJ, is urgent surgical exploration, either lap or open. Um, so reduce it if you can reduce it laparoscopically, great. Otherwise, you know, get it up in your hands and and reduce it, and then assess the viability. So you're you're reducing it, you're you're relieving that obstruction, and then you're kind of dealing laying the ball how it, or playing the ball how it lies. I think is how the saying goes. So obviously, if things are dead and necrotic, you got to you got to resect that and reconstruct it. If you, if, and uh, don't forget common things, right? Like if we had an interception in any other circumstance, we're going to be looking for a mass. So feel and make sure there's not a mass there. That's a lead point of this interception. And this is where it, this gets really controversial. If you reduce it and everything looks healthy, what do you do? Some, there are some that feel strongly to do nothing. I think those are the minority. There are some that feel strongly that you should perform a PEXI. And typically that PEXI is, uh, is uh, PEXI in the BP limb to the common channel to prevent that common channel from getting sucked back up into there. And those that are feel very strongly that you should resect and uh, reconstruct. Those people probably have the slight majority, the people that say you should always resect and always reconstruct. You know, I tend to think that if there's not good evidence and there's a couple options that people feel strongly one way or the other, there's not a single right answer. Um, so uh, you know, I, I kind of look at these and like I said, I, I, I make a game time decision. I've done both. I've resected and reconstructed and I've done a pexy where it looks like, you know, uh, it, it lies nicely and it's like, oh, this kind of wants to be pexy there. I think that's going to prevent it from going back up in there. You know, what's important is that you counsel the patient that no matter what you do, they have a higher rate of this, this might happen again. Like I said, even if you resect and reconstruct, these patients still have a higher risk, a rate of, of forming an interception in the future um, than, um, than somebody who never had one. So that there's something with the underlying motility that we don't fully understand that that's, that's contributing to this. Okay. Well, uh, you know, that's your favorite. My favorite is the obstruction from an intraluminal clot. I have a few questions. So number one, 
how do you diagnose this? Uh, is this easily seen on imaging? And then number two, what do we do about it? Yeah, good question. So, so, um, so how do you diagnose it? We'll, we'll address that first. Uh, yeah, a lot of times you can see it on imaging. You can see that they have, you know, a, 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 a some type of, but sometimes you don't know it's blood. It just looks like there's a bezoar there um, at their JJ that's causing an obstruction. You're also going to look at the overall clinical picture. Okay, is this somebody that you're dealing with an upper, uh, a bleed at the GJ? You know, you have a bleed at the GJ based on your endoscopy, based on their labs, those type of things. Okay, well then that kind of, clues you in that you might be dealing with the clot that's causing the obstruction and the timing from surgery. Is this immediate post-op? Um, is this, you know, you know, five years later, you know, that that's going to give you some clues. Uh, it can be challenging, right? Cause you're dealing with an obstruction at the JJ. You want to make sure you're not missing an internal hernia. Um, certainly. Um, but, um, um, but yeah. Uh, so you, there are some imaging clues that'll clue you in and the overall clinical picture. What was your second question? Basically, how do we deal with it? Uh, well, how do you deal with it? You said you said this is your favorite. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, that's why I think it's kind of cool is that you get to go in. If you can identify the aerial and imaging, uh, you can make simply just make an enterotomy, evacuate the clot, and then close it back up. Uh, it gets a little more difficult if it happens to be at one of the anastomoses, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the kind of the basics of it. Yeah, so if it's, I would say, you know, if it's at the JJ, which is most commonly where things are getting, uh, you know, hung up here, uh, yeah, you don't want to make an anatomy right on the JJ. You want to make it, you know, remotely so that you can close that. Um, if you can, preferably make it up on the BP limb, make your anatomy up on the BP limb to evacuate that clot. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, you're going to have to obviously kind of assess things and, and see how you can best get it out. But yeah, don't make, don't, don't make an anatomy right on the JJ. Make it, make it off it a little bit and milk that's, that clot out. It can be very satisfying to, to evacuate those clots. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on to uh, another issue within bariatrics um, is kind of like the two things that we see both, you know, stenosis and stricturing, uh, which is, you know, something you see in any time you do rearrange the anatomy of somebody's uh, small bowel or, or stomach. So number one, how do you deal with stenosis after gastric bypass? You know, it's pretty, it's pretty common, I'd say, for something that does happen. Um, and then is there any things you can do in the initial operation to prevent it? Uh, yeah. So yeah, this is a relatively common having a stenosis at your GJ, you know, just like, you know, any anastomosis can stenose. Um, I would say, you know, what, what can you do at the operation? Uh, you know, all uh, kind of all those things we talked about that contribute to marginal ulcers. So tension, ischemia, um, you know, all that stuff can result in a, a stenosis. So, you know, having good technique and avoiding those things. As far as how you construct your GJ, I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, things, you know, a, a lot of uh, studies looking at different methods, circular versus linear versus hand-sewn. Um, one has never really shown to be uh, advantageous over the other. So uh, however your technique is, just making sure that you're doing uh, that you're doing it well, um, and that you're avoiding tension and ischemia at that GJ is, 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 is really the best thing to do. Um, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll talk briefly about these because as a, you know, general surgeon, you're, you're probably not going to be dealing with a whole lot of these and, and these aren't really emergent things. Uh, but for the most part, for a stenosis after a gastric bypass, um, you can, you, these can be treated with endoscopic balloon dilation. You want to wait till at least three weeks post-op minimum to do that. You know, there are some things out there. People are doing stents for these stenoses, uh, for, uh, are variably tolerated by the patient. Um, and ultimately, you know, you, sometimes you do have to undergo a, a GJ revision for these uh, either recurrent or um, refractory uh, stenoses. 
after a sleeve, a stricture after a sleeve is a little bit more difficult because uh, you're not dealing with, you know, with the GJ, you kind of have a reason, right? You have that, that anastomosis that, that scars down, stenosis down. With the sleeve, a lot of times it's, it's a, a kink or a twist or it's not as clearly defined. It usually occurs at that incisura where there's potentially a little bit of narrowing, um, you know, forming it over, you know, a large bougie and making sure you're not narrowing it in cesura intraoperatively is, is the best way to, to avoid that. Um, uh, management is similar. There are, can be some balloon dilations. Um, stents can be useful. Um, I'd say more so for the sleeves and for this than the, than the uh, stenosis after a gastric bypass. But ultimately, it's, you know, a lot of these patients, or not a lot, but occasionally these patients will have to undergo provisions to, to ruin Y anatomy. So, um, I think it's all we're willing to say about about those things. Like I said, as a as a general surgeon, you're probably not going to be dealing with those a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, one thing you do see though early, say you know a patient comes back within a week of uh, maybe a few days after the bariatric surgery, they didn't go back to the bariatric surgeon. They came to your ER that day, but uh, staple line leaks. You know, how do we diagnose them and how do we deal with them? Yeah. Okay. So. Staple line leaks. Uh, these can be very challenging, and this is obviously, you know, kind of a devastating uh, or a dreaded complication after any bariatric surgery. The sleeve leaks are can be very challenging. Okay, uh, and what's important to note is that patients can really leak at any time. I mean, we think about it most commonly early in that early postoperative period. But I've seen patients come in with leaks, uh, even kind of like indolence leaks years after their original surgery. It's, it's fascinating. For, you know, a sleeve, it's, it's really multifactorial. It's normally proximal on the safe line. And again, it's, it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, ischemia, the sort of area relative ischemia. It's a high pressure system. So, you know, the way the sleeve is formed can cause some kind of pressure up there at that proximal staple line. Um, if you get that stapler a little bit on, either a little bit onto the esophagus, um, or even a little bit too far off where you leave a little nubbit of fundus, that's this little kind of ischemic quarter, both those things contribute to leaks and, and be a problem. So, you know, how do you, what do you do with this? So, you know, it's, it's a perforated viscous. So, you know, obviously NPO, IV fluids, antibiotics, antifungal, all the things that you do. Um, if it's early and it's not contained, you're going to have to go to the OR and, and wash that out, laparoscopic lavage. If it's very early, sometimes you can help with the direct suture repair of that leak. That uh, Honestly, that's rarely successful. But uh, if, if, it, if it's early and you can do that, good on you, great. Um, but really, the most important thing is washing out, leaving drains, and recognizing the fact that this is probably going to be a chronic problem that, that's, that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, fortunately, we're, we, we've come a long way with uh, endoscopic stenting. So a lot of times lavage, uh, drains, stents, um, and nutritional support, you know, you're, you're converting that, that uncontrolled leak into a controlled leak and eventually into a, you know, a gastrocutaneous fistula that you can manage just like you would manage any fistula. There are a number of other endoscopic you know, adjuncts, again, that we're using different glues, clips uh, with varying success. Um, there's some more advanced kind of techniques, you know, endoluminal vax, using T-tubes placed, uh, placed surgically to manage this leak. Uh, but for your, that kind of, your, that, are, that acute care surgeon, lavage, drain, and get them to, to somebody that can, that can uh, manage the, uh, a bariatric surgeon. For late, you know, for more, those later leaks, maybe they're contained perforation, you know, the principles are still the same, but a lot of times you can avoid that having to go to the OR and you can utilize your interventional radiology co uh, colleagues to, to place a leak. 
uh, or place a, a drain and then uh, go and deal with some of those endoscopic uh, methods for, for treating for treating that. There's some more advanced kind of surgical options that we won't you know really get into, you know, converting them to a bypass, uh, Roux-en-Y, fistula, jejunostomy, those type of things. But again, it, 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 as you're a acute care surgeon, you're not going to be dealing with that. After Real a quick, bypass... Though. Real yeah. quick with the uh, you know these these sleeve leaks and then uh, post or like stenting to be for the like, treatment. Like, how do patients tolerate the t- stenting overall? Is there anything you can do? Like, what do you? So you're always giving them some type of feeding access. Can they eat through the stent? Like, what other things are you doing to help them through that? Yeah, so a lot of times they can actually eat uh, uh, or you know have liquids uh, uh, you know um, uh, and eat uh, through the stent. Uh, it's not great. I mean, so the patients typically have a lot, of, especially depending on where the leak is, if it's up there proximally and you're stenting, you know, up into the esophagus past the, you know, G junction, those are pretty miserable. Um, patients have a lot of problems with reflux. So, you know, PPI therapy, head of the bed elevated, those, all those type of things that can help. Um, so some patients tolerate better than others, but no, it's not a pleasant thing, but it's, uh, it's a bad problem. And if you can, uh, kind of get the patient through that, uh, certainly you do want to consider, you may have to consider, you know, jejunal feeding access, but, uh, with covered stents, a lot of times you are able to, uh, manage their nutrition, uh, uh, past the stent. Okay. And then to round it out, we talked about sleeve leaks. How about gastric bypass release? Yeah. So, um, for bypass leaks, you know, those ischemia tension, all those things we've talked about and kind of uh, reiterated, there's really no association between the different type of hand zone versus circular versus linear. It's rare. Fortunately, it's about one half to 1%, um, getting rarer as we gain more experience with gastric bypass. Uh, you know, the management again is going to basically depend on it, it's similar. It's depend on the timing, severity, location. So if it's early in the post-operative period, um, yeah, going back, washing out, uh, being able to pr- provide a, a suture repair versus revision of that GJ, leaving drains versus if it's late um, and you're dealing in a more contained, controlled environment where you can you can place a um, a, uh, a a percutaneous drain. Stenting is still an option uh, for stenting past these. Um, you, but you, you may need some type of revision to revise the problem with that, that GJ for why it leaked, you may need to revise that GJ. Uh, and then lastly, we'll, we'll touch briefly on leaks from, from, uh, duodenal switches. These can be, you know, very, uh, very, very challenging, especially with these new single, you know, with the newer kind of single anastomosis duodenal switches. Uh, and the reason for that is because you have a pretty high volume of, of file that's coming past that anastomosis uh, with that, you know, that omega loop that comes up. So, um, so you're, you're, you know, it's, it's, it's managing a fistula, right? Managing a high output fistula or a high output leak is a lot more difficult than managing a low output leak. Uh, so those can be a little bit challenging. What I would advise the, you know, emergency general surgeon out there is that wash out lay drains, uh, potentially a suture closure if it's early. Don't get too aggressive with revising these until you can get them to a bariatric surgeon. All right. And then the last thing that I think we should talk about uh, specifically for the general surgeon to deal with, and this is something that comes up more and more, uh, is cholelithiasis and cholelithiasis in a patient specifically with gastric bypass anatomy. Yeah. So we're, we're going to be seeing a lot of this, I think. Um, 
uh, as we have more patients again with gastric bypass anatomy, you know, his, you know, back in the day, everybody's gallbladder came out with their bypass. We've learned that that's not necessarily the right thing to do. And it's not the right thing to do. So there's a lot of people walking out there with gallbladders and bypass anatomy. So the, you know, the issue obviously, which I think probably everybody understands is that, um, if we have cholidocal, if you develop cholidocal lithiasis after gastric bypass, you don't have easy access to that duodenum to perform that ERCP. Um, so we have to get a little bit creative. Uh, there's double balloon endoscopy that, you know, some, some uh, advanced endoscopists are able to do that's, that's very difficult. Um, I've actually never seen that. Maybe people out there uh, are at different centers with different endoscopists, but I've never seen that successfully performed. So what we'll end up doing with these a lot of times is, it, is well, number one, uh, I, I'm a big proponent of the reclaiming the duct. Uh, the general surgeon should be reclaiming the duct. So, you know, being a little bit more aggressive with your, you know, transcystic or, you know, transcolidocal um, uh, common bile duct exploration laparoscopically to remove that if you're comfortable uh, and facile with that, that's an option. Um, otherwise, doing a uh, an option is a transgastric um, ERCP. So, this is, you're, you're taking the patient to the OR, um, you're uh, laparoscopically um, accessing the uh, remnant stomach. Uh, tips and tricks I would say for this is you, uh, like you would do, like, you know, the first part of it is basically like you're doing a, a remnant G tube. So you're, you're getting that, you're placing your stasis tubers, you're getting that uh, gastric remnant up to the anterior abdominal wall, and then take your 15 millimeter port and place it, you know, make your gastrotomy and, and take your 15 millimeter port, place it directly into the remnant stomach. Um, this usually gives you a pretty, your endoscopist, a pretty direct shot um, through that into the duodenum. And I've had GI doctors tell me that it's the easiest ERCP they've ever done because they're, they're right there. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's how I would approach that. Okay. And obviously, uh, probably taking the gallbladder out at some point during that. Whole deal. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully that goes without saying, but yeah, you want to take care of the gallbladder and then you close your gastrotomy. So, um, you, you can usually just kind of staple close that gastrotomy at the end. Okay. All right. Well, I think that rounds out most of our bariatric complications and emergencies specifically for the general surgeon. Any final thoughts, Jason? Uh, you know, I, I, nothing profound other than think that uh, a lot of these uh, are going to be coming more and more into the realm of your acute care surgeon. Uh, there's, there's uh, uh, bariatric surgery is uh, ever growing and the population uh, is also ever growing. Um, so um, we're going to see more and more patients out there that are having these problems. Um, and uh, a lot of times they're not in locations, they're especially more rural locations where they're traveling to their center of excellence to get their bariatric surgery, but now they're back in your community with these problems. Uh, so this is, this is going to be an ever-growing problem that uh, I think is incumbent upon every acute care surgeon that takes community call out there to, to uh, be able to understand and, and help with these things. Okay, great. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day. 